0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome back. Uh, you guys heard about um, the Harvest Festival this Saturday. It is this Saturday from two to four p.m. I hope you guys can make it out. We're we're planning uh, for all of you to be able to come. There's plenty of activities. that will be outside. Uh, everything has been thought through in terms of how to keep things safe and, and sanitized and all of that. Food will be pre-wrapped and everything, but please come out. I know it's going to be chilly, but it is going to be sunny, so um, make take advantage of the opportunity to fellowship. We hope that you can uh, come out and join with us. Uh, please be in prayer also. It is a week, uh, less than a week, until the uh, votes are tallied and counted and Um, the future of our our country is going to go one way or another. So please be in prayer that God's will would be done and uh, that that he would, um, it says in Timothy, it says that pray for those that are in authority over us that we might live godly and peaceable lives in fear and trembling. And so that's the way that we pray is Lord, we pray you would provide uh, that that the church would be able to do what the church does without interference and uh, that we might be able to live quiet and peaceable lives. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're in First Samuel tonight, so if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers. they will pass one to you. We're in chapter 15 for our study. We're just going to do chapter 15 tonight as we go. If you guys could just maybe hit start on that count-up clock, everybody here would appreciate that. Not that it matters. I don't look at that thing. (laughs) But I I try so hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, let 's pray, Father, we just come again. We know that you 're here we 've been seeking you, Lord, and we just continue in in a spirit of supplication and prayer, and as we turn our attention to your word, lord, we 're asking that your Holy Spirit would settle upon us in such a profound and, and quieting and um, deeply spiritual way. We ask Lord that you would open the ears of our understanding, that you would soften and open our hearts to receive what you have for us tonight, and I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us for anything that you would do that is uh, seismic in our hearts tonight as we hear what you uh, have laid before us in this chapter. Lord, I know it applies. I know it's important. I know that uh, that the, the course of our future depends on the concept that's here. So we would pray that you would please uh, help us, Lord, to hear what you have to say. We thank you for your promise, your presence, and your power. And we ask you, Lord, that all those things would be in full operation in this place tonight. And so we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, we pray. A. Men. Okay, so I am, as most of you know, a father of five, and I usually get some kind of a gasp from someone who doesn't know. Like, oh my goodness, doesn't he know that we don't do that in America anymore? You know. <laughs> but um, but the thing that amazes me is how all five of my kids are are like me, and yet at the same time they are so incredibly different. They have different personalities. They have different. Uh, Capacities, they have different strengths and weaknesses, and they are just so incredibly unique, uh, and somehow they can still have a common denominator, and that just absolutely blows my mind. And then I think about uh, the kingdom of God, and I think about our Father in heaven and his kids. And uh, we are all his, blood bought, blood born, and we've been infused with the Spirit of God, and and thus we all, in some uh, respect, Uh, uh, reflect him, we look like him, but yet we are all very, very different, and we have different personalities and different capacities, and uh, there are major differences in us from one to the next, and God kind of addresses that in the way that he even talks. He has so many, like, you know, I'll call my kids different things, like I'll call them offspring, or I'll call them, you know, other things, and just you know other names, but uh, but God does that too. You know, sometimes He calls us children, sometimes He calls us friends. sometimes uh, He calls us um, you know, believers, sometimes born those that are born of God, you know, those that are saved. Like He just has all these different names that he that He calls to us. and and yet there's one name uh, that God uses to address us, His people, His kids. Uh, That he doesn't use on everybody, though he could, though he should, but it doesn't apply to everybody, you know, and that is uh, servants. You know, you see in the Bible God calling some of his kids servants you know and so we hear the apostle paul and he says that the servant of the lord must not strive but be patient and apt to teach you know and uh, all of these different things and and again in romans 12 paul famous verse chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 where he says that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to god holy and acceptable he says that it's our reasonable service And Paul calls himself a servant. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And and so, you know, that is something that God has privileged his offspring with, is that we have this uh, amazing ability uh, and potential and call to not just be his kids and not just be going to heaven, but we have this thing where we can serve him and we can be actually called his servants. And that's an amazing thing to think about, that we have this uh, great thing inside of us that God would call us these things. So what does it mean to be a servant of the Lord? If we're actually going to move from just belonging to him to now we want to give our lives to serving him. We want to join his cause and be a part of what he's doing in the world. You know, well, it means a few things. It means uh, that we recognize that we're called to that that there's a sense of calling in our lives that God has given something for us to do. It also uh, denotes an enabling, that he's given us something. There's a gift, there's uh, an emphasis, there's a burden, there's a talent, there's something there that he's given us to do and we've been enabled to do it. And then he gives us an opportunity. We're sent in it. And, And Paul says, how can we preach except we be sent? And so God gives us an opportunity to do what he's gifted us that he's called us to do. And that is an amazing Privilege to be able to serve the living God. It's also an amazing responsibility because of who we're serving and what it represents. There are effects because of our service, there's fruit because of our service. Now, for God, that means that there's a liability and a risk, right? If you're going to use flawed people to do your work, then there is the potential that certain things are left undone that need to be done. And it also has the potential for things to be corrupted that are supposed to be pure. Because we are corrupted and we are impure. That's just a part of the fallen condition that we're in. And so God knows that there is a risk involved in allowing us to be his servants. Okay, Now for most of us, service to God starts relatively early in our Christian experience. We don't know very much. We haven't experienced him for very long. There's still a lot that's messed up in us. And so service starts somewhere and then it kind of grows with us. As we grow in him, he enables us more. He opens more doors and things begin to move. Okay. Now there are some things that must be in place in our lives If we're going to serve the Lord, if we want to serve him, we have to be filled with his Holy Spirit because we serve in his power and not in our own strength. Anytime, and you guys know this, anytime that you've tried to do anything for God in your own strength, what is the outcome? it's ugly it's miserable it's messy okay so to serve him we need to be filled with him he's the one that gives us the power to do what he's called to do we also have to have a, a bit of wisdom and understanding to know how to go about doing things uh things that God teaches us along the way there's a gifting and an equipping it, it also it means that we need to be educated we have to know a God who we're serving right and so that education comes through his word. As we study him on the pages of scriptures, he's revealed himself to us, we grow in a knowledge of him, and that equips us and helps us to be able to serve him. I have found that there is a common denominator amongst all of those that are called of God to serve, uh, especially in larger capacities, that there is a season of, and, and it, it can be a season that lasts as long as you're alive. A season that you are so hungry for the Bible that you can't get enough of it. You, it's all you want to do is read it. You want to hear sermons. You're, you're fascinated by truth. And you just from wherever you can get it, you can get it. I know for me, my entire dec- the, the entire decade of my 20s was like that. Eight hours a day just listening to, to sermons and being taught the Bible and reading everything I could get my hands on, you know. And, and then it was like the silo kind of filled up. You know, it got to a point where it's like, I tried to keep doing that and it just wasn't going in anymore. It was just coming out. And that's, I think, the intent of God is that it goes in so that it can come out, you know? And so there's this time of just learning who God is because to know the Bible is to know God. It also means that there's a love for God that's sustained, It's not a season of love, but it's a love for him. If I'm going to serve him, I've got to be devoted to him. But there is one one element of serving God. If you're going to serve God, there's one element that I think is way down the list of things that we would uh, kind of um, uh, prioritize. It's often overlooked. It's underemphasized. Often it's ignored, but it's probably one of the most important elements that must be present in the life of anyone who's gonna be effective in any service for God. You can be way behind in every other thing and be strong in this one and you'll do okay. Or you can be way ahead in all of the other things, full of the Spirit and gifted and all that and knowledge coming out your ears. But if you come behind in this thing, you're gonna screw it all up. All right? Here's what it is it's obedience. Can I shout that back? Yeah, it's obedience. Now, whenever you hear that word, what happens to you? You go, Ugh, I hate that word. Because, because it reminds us of strict parents, right? It reminds us of, uh, of an overzealous teacher that we had at some point in our life that you know, kind of held the, 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 the iron fist of obedience you know, and, and, and compliance and everything in our life. And we hear the word obedience, and it feels like control, it feels like when we're being told to obey that it feels like we're being controlled. And, and, when, and when obedience has that kind of a, a spirit behind it, it doesn't breed obedience, it actually breeds disobedience, right? I mean, when you think about it, like, remember, remember when, when you came to realize that when your parents were making you obey, that they were being more controlling than caring, you know, that they were actually just trying to control what you did, but they didn't really care. And remember what happened when you realized that? Because everybody comes to an age when they realize that. Then you just go off the handle. You're like, well, I'm not doing anything, they say. I'm not doing anything anybody says. I'm just going to do whatever I want, okay? So sometimes forced obedience can cultivate disobedience, I just watched a a video that somebody sent me that was attached with a message. Uh, It was a Satanist, and he was preaching on YouTube, and he was saying that Jesus was a liar. And he was basically taking verses of the Bible and uh, trying to compare them with with, uh, actual uh, life events and said that Jesus is a liar. And so this person sent me the video, and they said, how would you answer this? You know, and they were just curious, like, how would you answer this if someone actually brought this up? And they were elementary things, I'm not going to waste the sermon getting into it, uh, the things that were, were in it. But, but as I watched the video, and Georgia was right with me, this guy who had like satanic symbols all around his background when he was saying what he was saying, he, he said in the video, about halfway through it, he said, I was actually brought up in a strict Christian home. And as soon as he said that, I looked at Georgia and I said, that's the issue right there. That's what's behind this entire thing right here. A strict Christian home. And, yeah, and I know exactly what that looked like without ever having been within the walls of that household. But sometimes obedience that is controlling and not for the purpose of caring breeds disobedience. And we've all seen that in our lives. Now listen, with God, and this is what I want you to hear tonight, with God, obedience is not for his sake It's for ours. Hebrews chapter 12, and I think I have a tab in here, otherwise I'm going to depend on the thing going up in the back. I am. Can you put it up? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, it says this. It says, Furthermore, we have all had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So subjection means to be in obedience. Now watch this. For they, that is our earthly parents, Truly for a few days chastened us, watch this, after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness." In other words, when God calls us into obedience unto him, it is not because he's trying to control us, but rather he's trying to serve us and help us. He's trying to guide us. And so, so important. Now, I say that by way of prefacing this Bible study, and you'll understand why as we work our way through this chapter. I'm going to move through the verses relatively quickly, and then I'm going to give you three points on the subject that this chapter preaches to us, and then we'll be done. Watch this, chapter 15, verse 1. It says that Samuel also said unto Saul. Now, just for background, those of you that may be uh, here for the first time or just joining in on the study, Saul is Israel's first king. He has uh, been chosen and anointed by God through Samuel, but he is failing. He's not doing a good job. He is not devoted to God. He's very self-willed. We're going to see that very clearly in this. But here he gets another chance. And it says that Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. And so Samuel establishes his authority as the one who anointed Saul to be king. He said, You're the king. But you're going to listen to what I say because I'm the one that actually anointed and laid hands on you, and the chain of command still puts me in a place where you better listen to what I say. But he doesn't appeal to what he has to say. He appeals to what God wants to say. And listen to what he says. He says, hearken or listen thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. And I want you to mark that phrase in your mind, the voice of the words of the Lord. That's not redundant. That's intentional. Because sometimes you can hear the words of something someone says, but you don't hear or catch the voice behind it. Sometimes you can get the volts, but you didn't catch the amps, you know, the power that's behind those words. Listen to the voice of the words. My mother, sometimes she would say Nicholas, sometimes she would say Nicholas, and I had to listen to the voice of those words. If you're married, you understand what it means to listen to the voice of the words, I have learned that if my wife leads in a phrase with the word, um, I am going to move something, fix something, or buy something. That's just, I've learned that. That's the voice of her words. If it starts with, um, I just prepare. Okay, what is it? You know, we learn that there's more sometimes behind what's being said, according to the voice of what's being said. So watch this. Watch what God says. Verse two, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember... That which Amalek, Amalek is a nation, a pagan, ungodly, Canaanite nation. I remember what Amalek did to Israel. Israel is God's nation. How he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, this is amazing because God is holding a grudge. God says, I remember what Amalek did to Israel when they first came up out of Egypt. This happened 400 years before these words were being spoken, which means that for 400 years, God has been holding this up, waiting for this time. It's been building up. And God says, I remember. Now you catch a beginning of the voice of the words behind what is, we'll find out what happened with Amalek later on, but it says this. So here's what Saul's to do, verse 3. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now I have to pause right there, okay, because this is one of those verses that people's check engine light goes on and they say, this is one of those things that I do not understand about God. Okay, Because God says here very clearly, he says, destroy, spare not, slay. He says, get rid, and he says, everything. Their animals, the kids, everything, destroy it, slay it. And people say, well, how could a God of love destroy a child or an animal that is technically innocent? How is that something that can be associated with a God of love? And the answer to that is twofold number one is this is that it is possible for a nation or a group of people to become so corrupted that they are nothing more than a rabid cancerous influence upon the rest of the globe and when that happens to a society god will take it out for the sake of sparing the corruption that will spread upon the other parts of humanity Now, when God does that, and there's really only two or three times that God does this in the Bible, he does it after a long period of patience. He did it to the Canaanites, but God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you their land, he said, but I'm going to do it in four generations because their iniquity is not full yet. That's Genesis chapter 12. In other words, God's saying, I am going to give them four generations to get things right. And if they don't correct course, then the time's going to come when judgment will fall. Again, here for the Amalekites, it's been 400 years since the offense that was committed against God and against the people of God. And for 400 years, God has given them long space to repent and to turn from their wickedness. But they haven't turned from it. And now the time has come where God says, wipe them out. So God does this after long periods of patience and mercy, leaving the door open for repentance. And then number two, and this is also very important, is that only God has the ability to know when that time has come for a nation and give the command that that's supposed to happen. No man can ever look at at, at another man, human, or group of people and say they don't deserve to live, they need to be wiped out. Only God who sees all things and knows all things can make that decree. And when he does, it's done according to perfect knowledge, his judgment is just, and everyone who knows one day what God knows today will say that was the right decision that God made because he's only good all the time. He doesn't explain everything, but he doesn't apologize. And the time has come where God says to Saul, I want you to go in and destroy them all. Now Saul gathered the people together and he numbered them in, in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. In other words, they dropped the leaflets from the helicopter and they kind of let everybody know what's coming. And they give the proper uh, warnings and indications. And then in verse seven, it says, and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good, according to Saul's assessment and judgment of things, and would not utterly destroy them. Do you know what it means in the King James Bible when it says that someone would not do something? It means they didn't want to. That's what it means. To would is to will, to will is to want. It's saying that Saul did not destroy everything because he didn't want to. It didn't make sense to him. It didn't seem fitting to those that were around him. And so he made a decision on his own contrary to what was commanded by God and he went with what he wanted to do rather than with what God told him to do. It says that he would not utterly destroy them but everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel saying, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. In other words, God says I regret the choice, the decision to make Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and has gone about And passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Kind of sounds like Saul is sort of trying to shuffle, sidestep, and avoid Samuel a little bit. And so Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, this is called Christianese. For those of you that aren't aware, Christianese is like Japanese or Chinese or, you know, just different language. This is Christianese, the language. Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That Christianese is what happens when people walk into church after fighting in the car in the parking lot, and they go from to to, to praise God, bless God, it's great to see you this wonderful Sabbath morn. Christianese, blessed be thou of the Lord. And Samuel said, what meaneth, or yeah, he said, I've performed the commandment of the Lord, and Samuel said, then what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears And this lowing of the oxen, which I hear, you know, what, what, you know, you're saying that, that you, you know, did what you said you were going to do, but, but then why am I hearing, okay, if, if you, you said that you cleaned your room, why are the socks protruding out from underneath the closet door and you could barely close it? You can actually see the tension on the latch and it's hemorrhaging out from under your bed. You, 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 know, you said that you, I, you were supposed to clean your room, but you didn't really clean your room. You, know, you guys understand what's going on here. He's saying, I'm hearing animals here. What do you mean you killed everything? And Saul said, oh, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, it was them, the people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, watch this, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Do you know what this is called? This is called, and you could, you could steal this word, extradience. Okay? It, it's, the, it, it's the opposite of obedience. It's extradience. And it means to perform unrequested or unrequired sacrifice in place of doing what was asked. Extradience right? Like Georgia says, make sure you get eggs and milk. And I forget the eggs, but I got ice cream. <laughs> you know, that's extraneous. I, I didn't do exactly what you said, but I did do one better. I went one step further than what you said, okay? You know, and people do this to God all the time. I'm not teaching my kids tonight, but I did let them watch an extra episode of Veggie Tales. You know, I did do that. You know, I I, I know you told me, I know you told me that I'm supposed to move out and not live with this person that I'm not married to, but I'm still giving, and I'm going to church more often than I ever did, and I'm reading and praying more than I ever did. So can't we just offset this? There's a little extradience here, and I know it's not perfect, but I'm I'm still kind of doing something, right? I, I know, God, you told me to stop using these substances but when I'm under their influence, I'm inspired to pray more and write music and poetry and songs and books that are going to help people know you more, right? Isn't that okay, God? I I know that you told me, God, to get rid of the smartphone, but what I did is I got rid of Tinder and I downloaded YouVersion Bible app, You know, so I I, I maybe didn't do everything, but what I did do, isn't that better? I mean, that encourages me to read more than I would have otherwise. It's extradience, okay? Now, listen, obedience didn't make sense to Saul. It doesn't make sense to burn this valuable substance, and so we'll put it to better use and we'll make God happy in the process. Oh, it's to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So Samuel, verse 16, said to Saul, Stay, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When you were little in your own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites." But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He doesn't want your money or your sacrifice or your attendance or your time or your reading or your mission. He doesn't want the service. He wants obedience. If you put the two things on a scale, doing what God asks of you is of greater value to him than what you might give him on the other side of the same scale. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams, in other words, what is valuable to you, does not translate into value to God if it means disobedience is part of the equation. For rebellion, now, rebellion is the opposite of obedience in the definitions of God, is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, okay? Now, witchcraft, if you think about what witchcraft is, witchcraft is manipulating natural forces to produce intended outcomes. So that's what witchcraft kind of is, casting a spell or a stupor or a cloud on things. Disobedience is circumventing God's will to suit personal desires, And God looks at those two things as the same thing. If you're disobeying God's will in your life in order to bring about a certain outcome, he looks at that the same way as someone who uses witchcraft to bend natural law to produce their outcomes. Both things are forbidden. And then he says that stubbornness, and stubbornness is self-will on steroids. That's what stubbornness is. It means I'm gonna do things my way. I want what I want. My will is primal, that's stubborn, okay? And you could beat me, you can bribe me, you can control me, but I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. And he says that stubbornness is as iniquity, that's uncleanness, and idolatry. That means that you're choosing a different God altogether. You're setting yourself as God or something else as God and you're denying God as God. And he says, because, now here's the consequence, of Saul's disobedience. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, and here's the truth. He says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. All right, the opposite of that would be to fear God And obey God's voice but he chose to fear the people and obey their voice meaning that his idolatry was that he wanted the the praise and the the lordship over the people he wanted them to be pleased with him and so people pleasing was the sin of Saul at its heart and he says he obeyed their voice Saul goes on, now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, watch this, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, he, Saul, laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, the edge of his jacket, and tore it. And Samuel said unto him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours that is better than you. I think those words echoed in his ears forever. Better than you, better than you, better than you, better than you. It was like, it was like Captain Hook's crocodile, you know, better than you, better than you, better than you. Can't handle that. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or repent for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. Watch this. Here's Saul's problem. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before or in front of the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Listen, if you walk away right now, I'm going to lose the allegiance of these people. Do you see what's still important to to Saul? You can say that you repent until the cows come home. But if you keep living the same way and you keep doing the same things, then you're not repenting. It's a shadow, it's a show. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then said Samuel, now I, I love this here. He, 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 says, he, he says two things. First, he, he doesn't say this with words, but he says to Saul, he says, let me show you what obedience looks like. <laughs> he says, let me show you. You want to see it? I'll show you. He says, bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. False, you know, humility, kind of a show of weakness, submission. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it through this. I just got to play the part, play the role. I'll be all right. And Samuel said, verse 33, as thy sword has made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women by the way... You hear here God's opinion of intentional childlessness. He says, So Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, Samuel's getting on in years now, okay? And he goes, come here, let me show you what obedience looks like. And He says, give me your sword. Agag, come here. And then, ah, he just goes gladiator on, on Agag. And, and, he, and then it says, That Samuel then went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, can anyone in here guess uh, what the theme, the lesson, (laughs) the exhortation of 1 Samuel chapter 15 is in a single word? Yes, very good. Obedience, obedience, all right? The Bible has much to say about obedience and the child of God. I want you to listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23. It says that Jesus answered and he said unto him, if a man love me, then he will keep my words. It's the word obedient, that he will obey my words. If you say that you love me, then the demonstration of that is that obedience will be present in your life. Uh, Listen to what the Bible says in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. This is uh, Peter and John speaking to Pharisees who were telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus. He says this, he says that we are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Ghost whom God has given to them that obey him. In other words, obedience is paramount to those of us that would experience the work and presence of God in our lives. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You know, yes, those that believe. Yes, those that are, are saved. But part of that is obedience. And evidence of that is that there is an obedience in the life. Listen to Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 5. Paul, Paul the Apostle talking to believers. He says, By whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship, that's a calling, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. In other words, part of what God gives us his spirit and his power for is so that we have the ability and, and the capacity in our lives to do what he says, to obey what he says. Uh, listen to Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says this concerning how we fight against temptation in the spiritual world that we live in. He says that we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against knowing God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness, that means that we have in our will, in our heart, we are driven to revenge all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. In other words, that we, we desire to obey him to the point where we hate disobedience and we want to fight against it. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter says this, he says, We are chosen, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. Do you get the idea of something that's important to God? Is that when he calls us by his name and he calls us to be his, obedience is paramount especially for the servant of the Lord, someone who's in a position uh, of prominence, not just those that are in a position like Saul was in, but to all those that are called by Jesus, that say that they love Jesus, obedience is paramount in their life. Now I'm just asking you a trivia question here and you can shout out the answer if you know it, but what is the number one question, okay, asked by children? Number one, it's one word, the number one question that's asked by children. You know what it is? Thank you. Very good. You're with me. Why? That's right. And if you have kids, you understand. If you remember being a kid, you understand. Why? Your parent says, do this, right? And what does the kid say? Why? <laughs> right? Come here. Why? Right? Go, go give your brother this thing. Why? You know, everything is why? Why, 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 why? All right? What is the number one answer that is given to them by parents? Go ahead. Very good. Because I said so. (laughs) That's right. Because I said so. And and so the authority of the parent is the basis or the reason for the request in in the natural world, in the natural realm. But oftentimes, when God asks us to do something, when we read in the pages of Scripture, or if there's something that he's impressing upon our heart, what is the number one question that we often have for God? Why? Why? right? Why? You know, God says, abstain from this thing that you really like doing and what's in our heart. Why? (laughs) Right? We want to know why. And oftentimes what we think is that God's reason is like our parents, that God is saying to us, because I said so. But God never says, because I said, well, he kind of does say that, but that's not his reason. Okay? There's more to his reason than that. And what chapter 15 teaches us above all other things is why obedience is important. Not just that obedience is important, but why obedience is important. And if you're taking notes, I'm gonna give you three quick points. I'm not gonna give you too much so that you can write them down, think them through, and, and then we're done, okay? But number one is this. Here is number one reason, according to what God has before us in this text, why obedience is important. Number one is because you do not fully understand the past, You do not fully understand the past. When God called Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, he said, I remember what Amalek did to Israel when Israel was coming up out of Egypt okay? And that's all God gave him. He didn't give him 10 pages of of discourse and all that that meant and implied. He just said, I got something I need to settle, and the time has come for it to be settled, so go and take care of this thing that needs to be taken care of. Now, Amalek, what they did was hideous, because they basically hit someone from behind who was unarmed and weak and that wasn't a threat to them directly at that moment and they took out the weak and slow ones that were in the back they didn't even like say hey let's size each other up and do you want to fight here they didn't even give them a chance to pray they snuck them they ambushed them from the back all right And then there was a battle after that. And that's that story. It's Exodus chapter 17, when Moses was up on the hill and he couldn't keep his hands up. And so Aaron and Hur had to prop his arms up to keep things going. And Joshua was fighting the battle. And, And Israel won that battle that day. Israel beat Amalek back by the help and the power of God. But Amalek was not destroyed. And Moses made this declaration. It's important. Moses said that God's people will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, God saw that Amalek is a sleeper cell of destruction for his people. And that at any time, they could rise up and they will be an affront, an offense, and a danger to the people of God. And God sees, based on the past, the potential for pain in the present and the future. And thus, God says to Saul, without deep explanation, cut it out. Get it out of my sight. This is the moment. Remove them. And Saul didn't understand fully what that meant. Okay? So what does that mean for you and me? God says something very profound in Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. We all know what the Ten Commandments are. Even if you've never been in church, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. But God said something when he gave the Ten Commandments, and I want you to listen to it. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. God says this through Moses. He says, you shall not bow down yourself to them that is idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Watch this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. In other words, what God is saying there is that when sin is manifested or becomes present in a person's life, or when a person gives themselves over to sinful behavior and they're overcome by it, God says that there is going to be a genetic tendency towards that same sin in the successive generations that follow. Do you see that word generations there? One of the words that we get from that is genetics, that which is passed along. And so God is saying that there are things that are in the genetics of a human being that can be passed on, even behaviors and inclinations towards sin. And we all understand that. Do you not struggle with some of the same things that your parents and grandparents struggled with? Are there not things in your life that you hate, that you know are not new to your family with you? They've been there for a while, for a few generations, But sometimes it can skip a generation. Sometimes there are things that my parents or grandparents, maybe they struggled with, that maybe I have a brother or a sister that struggled, but it really isn't that much of a struggle for me. And so I might think, well, I don't need to be as aggressive with cutting this behavior out because it's not something that really has a foothold or a stronghold in my life. And so I don't want to obey God when he says, do not be drunk with wine. You know? I don't want to obey, and it's not really a struggle for me, so I'm not going to be very aggressive with cutting that thing out. Now, what does God see? God sees that there's a sleeper cell of something that's going to rise up either in your life or in the life of someone close to you that is destructive and that will ruin you. And because you don't fully understand the past... You're being lackadaisical about the thing that God is telling you to do. But understand this, that what you do, what you do will impact not only you, but also those that are around you and those that come after you. There's a woman who's named Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a, she's a Christian, and she's also a neurosurgeon and a brain scientist, And she's done extensive research on the brain, on the mind, and how it connects to human genetics, the brain and the mind. And I want you to listen to something that that she has written. She says this, listen carefully. She says, every moment you are empowered to take control of how your experiences impact your health, down to the genetic level, by observing your life and how you condition your brain through your choices and subsequent behavior. As Dr. Tanzi points out, someone she works with, you are not your brain. You are the user of your brain. Every choice you make determines the experiences you have, and every experience you have will condition your genetic expression. Your habits and lifestyle come from programs of genes which you can control. Yes, there are gene mutations that take many, many years, but your experiences also change the way you express your genes. This is called epigenetics. Basically, this means that although you are born with certain genes, you get to sculpt many of these genes and how they express themselves through your lifestyle, habits, and choices. You have a lot of control over your biology. Indeed, 97% of your genetic history is not written in stone. It is amenable to your sculpting. What does this look like on a day-to-day basis? If you are constantly creating an environment of physical stress in the brain and body, your genes will adapt. Very soon, your genetic environment will be hurting you every day instead of healing you because your genes are responding to how you live your life. But the good news is that this can change. It only takes around 60 days to start reversing this. Although your DNA stays the same, your gene expression program will start changing when you start making different choices. You are essentially genetically reprogramming yourself when you choose to stand outside yourself, observe your thinking and choices, and change the way you live your life. Listen to this last paragraph. Why is this so important? As Dr. Tanzi notes from his research, we pass on any epigenetic modifications we make to our offspring. For instance, we can inherit the phobias of our parents based on their own life experiences choices, and choices, the way we choose to live our lives now can impact future generations. Now, all of that to say this, is that sometimes when God tells you to do something or not to do something, it might not be because it affects you directly. But it may be something that is in your history that you are being given the opportunity by God to break the pattern of something that's been in your family for a long time and hand your kids freedom instead of the bondage that's been carrying your line all along. And so God sometimes says, You don't understand the past, but I'm asking you to obey for the sake of your good and the good of your family. You don't fully understand the past. The second reason why obedience is so important to God by us is because we don't fully understand the present, not just the past, but also the present. I have a a good friend who lives down in Alabama, and he is just the funnest person on the planet to hang around with because adventure finds him. Wherever he goes, there is cool things happening. And, And the one phrase that comes out of his mouth more than any other phrase is I had a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He says that all the time. I got a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And and it's always something epic, like to go to Albania and preach to Muslims, you know. And and these things just find him, you know, these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, you know. Now, I know this, is that it is true with God that sometimes opportunities are once-in-a-lifetime. For Saul and the people of God This opportunity to wipe out the Amalekites is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because it will not come around again. This isn't something that David's going to be able to clean up. This isn't something that's going to come back around and be taken care of later on in the future. The Amalekites will go on and they will cause problems for the people of God for all generations to come. This is the opportunity to take care of what needs to be taken care of at this time, and it is missed. And there are times that when God tells us to do something or when God reveals to us that something needs to be taken care of in our lives, there will not be another opportunity for that something to be taken care of in totality or in finality. Sometimes there is. God told Abraham to leave his parents and Abraham delayed. And it says God had said to Abraham and there was, there was time. There was, it wasn't now or never. But there are many times where it's now or never. Moses struck the rock. He made a choice in one moment, and he lost an opportunity and never came back around again. Joash was told to smite the arrows. He did it half-heartedly, and he lost the opportunity to defeat the Syrians. And there are times that God gives you a window to take care of something, to deal with it, to put it to death, to nail it to the cross, to settle an issue. And this is the moment, this is the time right now, and it may never come around again. And for Saul and for the people of Israel, that was absolutely the case here. I can think of things in my 20 years of being a Christian where God gave me an opportunity and I took it. And taking it was the best decision I ever did because of the way that it was a done deal from that point on. There are other things in my life in Christianity that I compromised on and waited, and I regret it greatly because it becomes a perpetual thing and a perpetual struggle. If God says do it, do it, because you don't understand how the present works. It may not come around again, okay? Now, I want to pause here real quick and just say this. Don't leave here in fear, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just done. <laughs> I'm going to miss it because I'm so... Th-. Listen, it is always true that God is not dependent upon the IQ of the sheep, he is a shepherd. He does not depend on R.I.Q. IQ. If you disobey God, you will know that you are disobeying God. You're not going to do it by accident. You, you, you will know that you are doing it. Point number three, and then we're done, is that we also cannot see the future. We don't understand the past. We don't understand the present. And we cannot see the future. The human being has a physical vanishing point of exactly four miles. (laughs) Meaning that if you're standing on flat land and you're looking out, you have the ability to see four miles in front of you. At that point, the curvature of the earth is such that you cannot see past that point. We don't see very far in front of us, is the whole idea there. Spiritually, our vanishing point is way closer. Because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's gonna happen on the way home from here tonight. We can't see the future. We're limited in that thing, all right? Now, God does see the future. He sees what's coming, not just in my lifetime, but after my lifetime, He sees my kids and my grandkids to as many generations as there are until he comes. He sees what society will look like in the future that I don't understand now. He sees situations that are coming in my life that I can't see yet. He sees his plan and where he's leading me and my offspring and his church for generations to come. And listen carefully. Sometimes obedience today is critical for something I can't see that is coming tomorrow. Now for Saul, this moment is very, very costly to him in the moment because he loses his crown. But do you know that this moment is going to come back to bite him in the future as well? Do you know why? Because Saul is going to be killed by an Amalekite. When Saul finally does die, it will be an Amalekite that finishes him off, that plunges the sword through him. And there's no way that he could have known that now, but it doesn't make sense. Like, why would I kill them all? I mean, I did kill them all. I guess I kind of killed them all. Well, maybe a few got away, you know, enough to kill me later on. Listen, sometimes when God says, get something out of your life and it doesn't make sense to you, it's because he sees something that's coming in the future that you can't see, that that very thing that he is pleading with you to deal with is that he knows it will be your demise. The last words of Saul will be, I played the fool. Is that I was the fool. I did not listen to God. I was disobedient to God. Not only will Saul be killed by an Amalekite, but a direct descendant of Agag the king will be a na- man whose name is Haman. Do you guys know who Haman is? Haman is the man in the book of Esther that plotted to kill and wipe out the entire nation, and it almost happened. One one little cell one descendant of this man agag almost wiped out the entire nation of israel here's the point is that obedience when god tells us to obey is not a burden something that we have to come up under because god said so obedience is our servant do you understand we can't understand everything that has happened before we lived We can't comprehend the dynamics of the present moment and what our decisions right now mean. And we can't see what's coming in our lives, our situations, or our society. But obedience is a guide that will keep us safe. Do you understand? Is that when God tells us something in his word or he whispers it in our heart and we obey him, it ensures our safety and our benefit in the days to come. It's not a burden, it's something that God gives it. It helps us, it helps us, it's a compass, and it's a guide. And obedience honors God. Because the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight, right? So we, our obedience is out of faith, and it says that faith whoa, works by love. <laughs> when God says, give the tithe, it doesn't make sense, God, that you're, you have money, you don't need mine, but he says do it. When God says abstain from sex outside of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. But God, that doesn't make sense. I don't want to. When God says forgive those that hurt you. When he says embrace suffering with thanksgiving. When God says put on the garment of praise even if you have a spirit of heaviness. When God says stay faithful to an unreasonable spouse or stay faithful to an unfaithful spouse. When God says, stay at a job that you hate, or stay in a situation that you hate. When God says, go the extra mile, even though you don't want to, or it doesn't make sense to. When we do those things, we do them by faith, which works by love, and then someday we will see why it mattered in that moment when we choose to obey. Proverbs chapter three, verse five, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path." To trust and to love is to obey. To obey is to be shielded in your path and it will be led by God very carefully. As we close tonight, I wonder if maybe there is some Amalekites in your life that God has been speaking to you and telling you that it's time to get rid of them. I wonder if maybe there's a few things, maybe areas of compromise, some sleeper cells that maybe maybe they don't affect you that greatly and you think they're not that big of a deal, but there's some quiet voice in the stillness of your time where God says, this has got to go. It's time for you to break the water pipe. Or maybe it's time to put a baseball bat through your smart TV. Or maybe it's time to not delete a few apps, but just throw the whole phone away. You know? Or maybe it's time to clean out the fridge and do things a little bit different. Maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's not even necessarily sin, but God is saying it to you because He sees not just you, but He sees what's coming after you. See, this moment right here where God whispers to our hearts and, he, and he, he brings those things out and we see it in scripture and in the light of eternity and spiritual things that we can't understand. This is the moment that like when, when Samuel came to Saul and he said, listen, this is what needs to happen next. This is that moment right now. This is what needs to happen next. When the spirit of God whispers to you and says, this is what needs to happen next. But it's when you leave here that you have the opportunity to obey or to ignore or delay. But that can be costly. And when God calls us to set something down, or if he calls us to pick something up, it's not because he's trying to control us. He's trying to serve us. He's leading our future. And so we're going to sing this last song. It's called Build My Life. And the words in it, I will build my life upon your love. If a man loves me, he will keep my words. And maybe there's in your life tonight, there's something that you know that the Spirit of God has been saying, this needs to die. You don't understand what it is. And you're playing with it, and you need to stop. It is serious. It means something. There are consequences and I don't speak in vain. It isn't a test just to see if you will. It will matter. And this is the moment where you say, okay, I'm going to deal with it. Resolutions happen before things are done. And so as we sing this last song, I'm just going to invite you, in the privacy of you and God, to maybe come and just kneel at the foot of the cross, come forward. And not, not because it means something for you to take the steps and that that's actually that, but it's the time for you to make the resolution to say, I agree with you, God. I, by faith, am gonna make a decision and a choice to take upon me the attribute of obedience. And what will be my service, my sonship, or my daughtership, to live and, and know you. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, in this moment right now, that your spirit would speak. Oh Lord, every one of us wants to know you and not one of us wants to see our lives shipwrecked, our crown taken, or something that seems fun today to be what kills us in the days or weeks or years to come. So would you give us faith? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us the ability to bring to the foot of the cross those things in our life that you're asking of us to lay down or to pick up those things that you're asking us to take up and that you would empower us, give us courage, give us strength and give us faith for we ask you to do that now in the name and the power of your son Jesus. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. If the Lord moves upon your heart, just come. Nobody's going to bother you but you be real with God.